Hello, and thanks for tuning in to another Fisher Investments Market Insights podcast. My name is Naj Srinivas. I'm the Group Vice President of Client Communications here at the firm. And today I'm joined by Senior Research Analyst Scott Botterman. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here, Scott. So, Scott, we do this about once or twice a year, but uh, why don't you give us an update on what's going on in emerging markets, your area of coverage for the firm? Yeah, so I think if, generally speaking, emerging markets has been very weak from a return standpoint. Uh, It peaked around January 26th and then is down close to about 15% after through today. Uh, Most of that has been tied to concerns over global trade, which I mean, most people have heard about the trade tariffs. Global trade is a much more important area for emerging markets with a lot of the export-oriented countries. But there's also been some other concerns tied to you know, higher interest rates and dollar of U.S. dollar availability. Let's go into that a little bit more. So, yes, trade and tariffs have been a lot of the talk, but most of that conversation has been about between the United States and China. How are other countries in the emerging markets impacted by some of the some of that trade war rhetoric? I think a good example would be South Korea. Now. You kind of think about the geopolitics of that region. You have China that really has ties with North Korea. The U.S. has ties with South Korea. So in some regards, China at times, in order to retaliate against the U.S., has retaliated against South Korea. For example, when they put in a new radar detection system in South Korea, China limited tourism from China into South Korea, which is a big business for them and also put increased trade barriers on certain South Korean goods. So when you start to see trade tensions between like the US and China intensify, sometimes you can see certain restrictions put on their allies as well. So there's a little bit of a, a spillover effect to maybe not the main characters that are involved in these talks, but some of the ancillary countries that might, be, might have ties strong, strongly to one country or the other. Correct, and a lot of them too are part of the supply chain. So the end good might be manufactured in somewhere like the United States, but the supply chain is spread across a lot of different emerging markets countries. So the other thing you mentioned was interest rates overall going up. How does rising interest rates negatively impact emerging markets countries? And I think this kind of ties back to just where bond rates are in general. I mean, one of the larger themes in the investing world has been this search for yield um, with long long-dated interest rates much lower than they have been historically, you have a lot of investors who are looking for higher-yielding instruments. And so if you wanted to get your 4 or 5% yield on bonds, you can't get that in the developed world, so it pushes you into the emerging world. Well, that premium or that spread between emerging markets debt and U.S. debt has narrowed quite a bit over the last few years. Now, if suddenly interest rates in the U.S. rise, that's much more attractive than taking the risk of an emerging market country's debt like Brazil. The fundamentals just are much stronger and less volatile in the U.S. than they are in Brazil. So whenever you see interest rates rise, some of those people who have invested in the higher yield emerging markets start to unwind those trades and and bring the the currency back basically into the U.S. So I know this was a much, much bigger problem in the past if you think about the 80s and 90s where you had a lot of emerging markets countries issuing dollar-denominated debt, is that still as big of an issue today? Are these emerging markets, central bankers, well-prepared to actually deal with this? 
they're more prepared than they were in the 80s and 90s. Um, I think one of the big issues in the 90s was a lot of pegs to the US dollar as well. So they had to maintain a peg to the dollar and that's very difficult when you have the Fed raising rates, the US economy doing rather well. It's very difficult to maintain that. Um, now, if you look at dollar-denominated debt, it's not nearly as high as a percent of GDP, but there are definitely some countries that are more vulnerable than others. I mean, Turkey kind of falls into that camp. And it's not just necessarily about dollar-denominated debt, it's also about having a dual deficit, meaning a current account or trade deficit, and also a budget deficit. The countries with both of those have been some of the hardest hits, mainly on the currency front. And the last point you brought up was dollar availability for these countries. What's going on with respect to that? So the countries with the dual deficit, so again, a budget deficit, but also a trade deficit, your economy is then reliant on bringing in U.S. dollars because U.S. dollars are the currency for all global trade, just by by fact. Um, So if you are a country like Brazil or Indonesia, India, South Africa, Turkey, you have both a budget deficit and you have a trade deficit or current account deficit. So that means you have to bring in a certain amount of dollars each year. Well, when dollar liquidity is lower, that puts a strain on your economy because that means you're going to have to finance this at higher interest rates and it makes it more, it's more expensive. So it becomes more difficult to finance your economy. So countries like Turkey have really struggled with that. Um, And a lot of the dollar liquidity has become a little bit more difficult for some of these countries to get access to because, as we mentioned earlier, rising interest rates. But really what has occurred is an increased amount of issuance for U.S. Treasury notes and bonds. We saw a spike of that in the front half of this year, and a lot of that is tied to the, the, the Trump tax cuts just because we have a larger U.S. deficit. And so that's soaked up some of that dollar liquidity. Now, it looks like a significant portion, we'd say over half of it has already been issued this year. So some of those strains will decrease as we get through the year. Another thing worth noting is that the Fed has lines to offer dollar liquidities to many central banks around the world. We're at a point where if someone is really at risk, they could tap that pretty easily. So there's a reluctance to do so because that gives off the perception that someone's weak, but they're there for people to access. And I think markets have started to price in that concern. And you can see that in in certain metrics like the OIS spread to LIBOR. Um, But but generally speaking, we're kind of at that point where it reaches that strain. And we've already started to see that spread lessen, which is a, a, a positive for the markets. What are some of the other major stories that you're following right now in emerging markets? I think one is the unwinding of shadow banking in China. Um, If you think about what occurred over the last several years, a significant portion of credit growth came from shadow banking, meaning not from your traditional banks. So it would be done through what were called wealth management products. Essentially, these wealth management products would issue loans to corporations, and then they would sell that to individual investors through these wealth management products. Uh, the reason why they're now being unwound is it takes that control away from the Chinese government. They put loan quotas in place because they want to have the ability to manage their economy. But when it got taken out of the traditional banking system, their toolbox wasn't designed for that. So now they want to bring it back into the traditional banks. What's been occurring so far, though, is 
they've gone after shadow banking, but you haven't seen a, a significant pickup in traditional lending to make up for it. So you started to experience a slower loan growth, slower money supply than really the government was probably anticipating. And the reason you can kind of start to see that is they've announced two reserve ratio requirement cuts. Um, they did one in April and they just announced one today as a way in order to address some of the concerns that they're seeing from falling sharply decelerating money supply and loan growth. I think that ties back too with our belief that it's going to be very difficult to get a large amount of inflation when you see a large economy like China have money supply decelerating and loan growth decelerating the way that it is. Because again, you need to have pretty high loan growth and money supply in order to cause inflation. And with the US and China kind of following a similar path of decelerating money supply, it's more very difficult to see large amounts of inflation in the next 12 to 18 months. So we've talked a lot about China, but what about some of the other big emerging markets countries, Russia, India, Brazil, how have they fared recently and what are some of the major themes that you're following there? Well, Brazil has elections coming up, which has been kind of on the forefront of everyone's mind. And if you're asking me for a prediction on what I think is going to happen there, it's pretty much anyone's bet. I mean, no one is really polling all that strongly there. Uh, There's a lot of uncertainty associated with it. It is worth noting that their government right now has an approval rating in the single digits. So you're probably not going to see him go. He's not even planning to run for re-elections. It's an environment where you're going to get a lot of gridlock. And in a country like Brazil, I think that's fine. I mean, they've gone through their recession. They have falling inflation. They're starting to recover from that recession. Um, So even if you don't have big reforms, that's going to be just fine. In fact, we would actually argue that it'd be better if you just had that gridlocked environment. Because what we don't want to see is significant government intervention in their businesses. Mm -hmm. Um, Like you've seen in the past. And of course, they've gotten a lot of those political scandals out of the way and behind them here. Although there may be some stuff still lurking beneath the surface there. um, But again, that's something that could be, that's very normal in emerging markets. It's just not preferred for investors. So this year we've seen oil prices come up quite a bit off their lows. And Russia, with its economy being so tied to energy production, have we seen Russia start to benefit from higher oil prices as well? Or are they still suffering as a result of the sanctions that were placed on them a couple of years ago? So Russia started out the year pretty well. I mean, I would say that while you saw in the developed world, when oil prices move higher, energy companies in the developed world didn't move up, especially here in the U.S. But in emerging markets, the large ones in Russia, China, and even in Brazil went up along with oil prices. Um, However, Russia fell about 20% in a single day when new sanctions were levied against Russia tied to the spy assassination on British soil. Um, So you fall a pretty dramatic drop off in Russian prices just because, again, there's that concern of you can put money in Russia, but then can you get it back out? Are there additional sanctions on the horizon? You don't want to be invested in a country where you can't get your money out. Mm -hmm. And so that's a very real concern with with Russia in some degree. Um, They did recover a little bit as oil kind of got back up to that $80 a barrel, but then when it rolled down again, it underperformed. But I think you haven't seen as much of a benefit for them from high energy prices because of that second round of sanctions that came through this year. So we've talked a lot about some of the headwinds that emerging markets countries are facing, at least the big emerging markets countries. What are some of the positives that we're seeing? I mean, the the consumption story in China remains intact. 
you know, there's been some weakness associated with broad emerging markets, and so some of those companies have fallen along with the broader market. But if you look at the overall revenue growth and earnings growth for companies heavily leveraged Chinese consumers, they're still growing at a very strong rate. And I think that's something to continue to focus on. That's not going to go away. Uh, one thing that we've found with some of these shifts from more of an industrial infrastructure to a consumer-oriented economy is that oftentimes the last leg of growth comes from short-term consumer financing. And if you look as a percent of GDP, China has that at about 8% of their GDP. Most developed and even some of the more further along emerging markets countries have that in the high to mid-teens. So that means China still has room to grow, and that's going to continue to drive that growth. And I think people underestimate just how long and strong that trend can continue. So that's that's a very positive area. And I, and I think it's also worth noting that, yes, there's been some weakness in emerging markets, but we also just went through one of the longest calm periods for emerging markets in its history since 1987. We had over 600 trading days without a correction or bear market. On average, you typically get one or two of those every other year. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not uncommon to have this kind of volatility. In fact, we think it's perfectly normal. Um, but there's still a lot of good opportunities in emerging markets. And I think sometimes that's kind of forgotten about focusing on some of those individual stories because there's a lot of different countries, there's a lot of diversity, and you have to very be very careful about just lumping everything into one category like people tend to do when it comes to emerging markets. Some of those positives are missed amid the, the more fear and greed-focused headlines in the news. Absolutely. And then last but not least, how about India? What's going on there? Have the effects of that demonetization experiment started to wane on the country? You know, the economic activity has recovered from the demonetization. It's still one of the faster growing emerging markets. Um, What has been interesting is really more of a populist push by Prime Minister Modi there. If, If some degrees they've gone after, they reintroduced capital gains tax. You think about the vast majority of Indian voters, they don't have an account. They're not trading in equities. So mm-hmm. that doesn't impact them, it impacts the rich. But if you're a voter, that sounds great because you're not having to pay for it. Mm-hmm. Um, they've also kind of closed off some of their offshore trading and P-notes. So closing off their capital markets to some degree because that's where people were using trading derivatives on India. So it seems like the politics have gone from being more reform-oriented and market liberalization to being a little more populist-oriented, which is not usually a good sign for an emerging market. So you know, the economic growth is good, but it seems like the politics are going a little bit more on the populist side and are more anti-market. So for us, we've, we've been a little bit less positive on India from that standpoint because it does raise some political concerns in that country. Now, is that because of an upcoming election? Is this a, a shift to try to appeal to the largest group that is possible in India, or is this just a result of, well, things have been going well for so long, now is the time that we can get some some wins under our belt on these other issues? It's more of, they do have elections coming up and they want to kind of get some more voter support. Some of the local elections have been a little bit cl- closer than they would like, and in some cases they've lost some support. So it seems like they're trying to shore up their popularity. Um, which, again, it's not what you want to see in terms of where they were in terms of a more independent central bank giving people increased credit to banks, uh, the goods and service tax simplifying trade. Those types of reforms have already gone through. 
and the more recent ones have been kind of more anti-business. Even demonetization you could point to as not being that great of a policy, especially given the impact it can have on, on the economy. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode. Scott, thanks so much for being here with us today and sharing some of your thoughts on emerging markets. Yeah, thank you. And to all of you listening, thanks for tuning in. For more, please visit marketminder.com. And if you have feedback on this podcast, please email me at editors-mm at fi.com. Thanks so much. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. Past performance is no guarantee of future returns. The content of this podcast represents the opinions and viewpoints of Fisher Investments and should not be regarded as personal investment advice. No assurances are made we will continue to hold these views, which may change at any time based on new information, analysis, or reconsideration. Copyright Fisher Investments 2018.